Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm, and it is May 26, 2023, and that means it's time for me to sit down and have a chat with my bestie, senior tech reporter on fintech. It's Marianne Azevedo. Hey, how are you? Hey, Alex. I'm good. I'm excited for the long weekend. How about you? Oh, don't talk about it yet. You'll scare it away. If you jinx it, <laughs> something big's going to happen and we're going to be stuck here all weekend long chasing down no. why Coinbase bought Chime or something. Oh my God. Okay. All right. Never mind. It's going to be a long, boring weekend, hopefully, but we do not have a long and boring show. We have a correctly sized, lovely show for you. And today we are going to talk about all things Checkmate. Don't worry. No chess jokes will happen there. The Kava IP in which we discuss how to take the Chipotle model and add hummus. And then we're going to riff on why Daylight has called it quits, an update on all things layoffs. And then will startups even have a shot in the enterprise AI race? It's going to be a real treat. But Marianne, I think that you should start because you're going to say words like chain smokers and Paris Hilton. So take it away. Yeah. So this week I wrote an article about a company called Checkmate, which sort of straddles the e-commerce fintech worlds, right? Kind of more e-commerce even than fintech. But basically, it caught my attention for a few reasons. One, I love to shop. So they promise <laughs> that they'll help you save money when you're shopping. Then another thing that caught my eyes, they raised $15 million in a Series A funding round. OK, this is just like I didn't count how many, but like less than a year since they raised their seed round. Now, okay. a couple of years ago, this was very commonplace and not a big deal. It has become much less common to see successive rounds raised within a short time frame like that. So I thought that was interesting. And its investors are interesting. Uh, Google Ventures led its latest round, which also included participation from uh, Mantis VC, which is a chain smokers venture firm, and a bunch of angels. By the way, angel investors, not like real angels. <laughs> angel investors like Paris Hilton and like this long list of former CEOs or founders or executives from companies like Brex, Rakuten, Honey, Amazon. I just pulled up the Chainsmokers discography on Spotify in hopes that they had a song about Checkmate so I could make some sort of elaborate joke. Do they only know single words? Because their, their songs are named like Closer, Paris, Roses, Takeaway. Like, you know, they can add more <laughs> words. Uh, if you don't know the Chainsmokers, <laughs> I'm impressed by this. They have several songs with several billion plays on Spotify alone. And it turns out that's enough money to make a venture capital fund. And you can invest it into things like Checkmate. Marianne, what does it do? Yeah. So basically, I mean, it's it's an app. It's designed for people who who shop online. Now, you can use it as a browser extension on Safari on a desktop, but it's really designed. It's more of a mobile first application. Oh. So and I, I installed this to try to feel it out. Right. Because I wanted to better understand exactly what the user experience is like. So first off now. When you shop, like these days, usually if you go to a website, they like ask for your email, they ask for your phone number, and that's so they can spam you, right, with promotional mm -hmm. emails or texts. Okay. Well, if you have like Gmail, for example, all those promotional emails end up like in one folder. Most of the time you don't even see them, or basically you start to tune them out, right? If you're like me, I just tune all of these out. There's too many of them. I can't keep up. Same with the text. I just start tuning them out. So with Checkmate, they're saying, look, we're going to pull all these available discounts online. So if you go to like a particular store and they and they have like 40,000 stores that you can find on their app and they'll pull up all the online codes that might give you a discount. They'll even extract codes that might be within your email that you didn't see or didn't bother to look up. And they also partner with some brands on creating new codes. So they're claiming they can save you money, a lot of money, make everything easier. And then in the app, 
This kind of freaked me out just a little bit, I have to admit, because I tied into my email address and it pulled up like an Amazon order, like when it was going to be delivered, you know, previous orders I had made, not even using the app, which uh. some people may like kind of creeped me out a little bit. Anyway, but it like keeps it all in one place. So you can like check all your online shopping, tracking it all in one spot. It's an interesting concept. Yeah. And apparently it's kind of had a big social media splash. So we know it hit number one in the iOS app store at the end of last year. So clearly some consumer demand that probably I think led to the Series A happening as quickly as it did. And then your piece said it had over 400,000 active users. And I love this metric over 600,000 TikTok followers. Yes, actually, it was they surpassed over 400,000 users, including 60,000 daily active users. But yeah, it was I think it was 600,000 followers across its TikTok and Instagram accounts. They said they went viral. Yeah, they went viral on social media. So apparently that helped boost its popularity, which leads me to believe they are targeting a younger demographic that that would be on TikTok, for example. Yeah, I I can't believe given that we just lived through a global pandemic, we have kept the phrasing went viral. Like how did that, (laughs) how did that not get canceled by like common sense and good taste? And yet here we are. Yeah, here we are. So a lot of social media followers, TikTok, Instagram, I agree that probably means this is more of a thing targeted at Gen Z and uh, younger millennials because they're the most online and therefore probably the most active on the online shopping realm. My question is how many places does it work with? Does it work with like a couple stores a lot? If I understood this correctly, they have 40,000 online stores on their app. So they're hoping to like build that up to even more. They're also like in general, their goal. So it's a free app. Mind you, you don't pay as a consumer. They like take a percentage of whatever you might buy if they help drive traffic to a particular retailer's site. Their goal is basically to become what they call like they want to reinvent online marketing, right? They want stores to like like this to be their marketing platform. I feel like this is really ambitious, but nothing wrong with having goals. But that's their long term goal. I was kind of excited about this until you said reinventing online marketing and then something in my soul died because I I feel like online marketing is already sufficiently aggressive and and, uh, pervasive that if we reinvent it, is it really going to be more consumer friendly? So maybe Checkmate will prove me wrong in my my newly found cynicism for it. But I will say interesting investor list, clear consumer reach, and they have a couple of now brand ambassadors right on the cap table. So makes sense. Yeah. And also, last thing I'll say is, I mean, basically what they're trying to, to do is is make this more personalized, not feeling like such a spammy sort of thing when you get your your online codes. That's that's what they're saying. So they're trying to tell this as a personalized shopping assistant. But I don't know. It may not be for everybody. I'll be curious to see what happens over time. How much money do people have? I mean, like, I feel like I don't need any help to overspend on stuff. I don't need a personalized assistant. What I need is a personalized no button. Like, can I, should I buy a new office chair? No. Should I buy myself a third gaming PC? No. Should I buy new 4K monitors? Alex, what the fuck is wrong with you? You know? Same, same, same. Maybe that's what we need to do, Alex. Like start a company that like helps people learn to say no, like have some self-control when shopping. I, I found this app that was kind of a hack around how iOS worked and it would like create like a delay when you loaded up like Twitter or something. It made you like do you really want to open it? And I tried to make it work, but I, I got frustrated <laughs> trying to get it to set up. So I was too impatient to set up the thing that was going to help you become more patient. And I was like, ah, yes, 2023. Oh 
Sounds like me. That's hilarious. I mean, look, we, we both have the same brain worms, I think, at this point in time. But speaking about saving time, one way that people love to do that is by hitting up fast, casual restaurants, places where you can walk in, point at various things and have them converted into a burrito. For example, uh, Chipotle or Chipotle, as we say in my household, was a pioneer of this and proved that people will mix and match different proteins and beans into a myriad number of eating opportunities. There's a thing called Cava, Marianne, or Cava? Is, is it Kava? I always say Kava. Kava. Yeah. Okay. We'll go with Kava because it's probably not Kava now that I think about it. So Kava is essentially like Chipotle, but for Mediterranean food more generally. And I know that they bought a thing called Zoe's Kitchen back in the day. I learned that reading the S1 filing for their IPO, which is why we're talking about them. But you actually have a personal connection to not Kava, but Zoe's. So tell us why you like Zoe's and why you're pissed off at Kava. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, Zoe's Kitchen was good. It was good food. It was also Mediterranean. It wasn't like the Chipotle model where you actually went in and you ordered, okay, I want a, a chicken pita or whatever. It was good, fresh food. We really enjoyed it as a family. We loved their chocolate cake. It was absolutely delicious. I mean, it tasted like it was homemade out of the oven. So good. So I resent kava because (laughs) of kava, I can no longer get my chocolate cake. And that really does piss me off. And so I'm upset. Like, why couldn't you keep both? Why did they have to get rid of Zoe's Kitchen? They like turned all the Zoe's Kitchens into kavas. Now, mind you, last thing here... I've only been into Kava once. Okay. It was okay. I was not that impressed. I don't think it's like true Mediterranean food. I think it's trying to be. And I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm not very happy about what they did. Okay. So, so Marianne has to step up on me here because she's been to both Zoe's Kitchen and Kava and Kava did buy Zoe's Kitchen for $300 million and has worked for the last couple of years since 2018 to convert all of those locations into Kava locations. And per their S1 filing, that's nearly done. So the the Zoe's Kitchen defenestration, if you will, as a brand is essentially complete. RIP Marianne's chocolate cake. But it turns out that even though I have not eaten at a kava and that Marianne's only been to one and only has beef with it, other people love it. And the company has been growing uh, quickly. And to my surprise, and I bet you're asking, oh my God, why are you two talking about this on equity? I did not come here for restaurant news. Well, did you know that it raised money from venture capitalists, family offices, and private equity? So it is in fact a venture-backed company and its last private round, $190 million, led by T. Rowe Price Group, aka You're Gonna Go Public Soon, valued it between $1.3 and $1.5 billion, source depending. So it's a unicorn venture-backed IPO that makes Mediterranean food-ish. And apparently it's big on college campuses. On Twitter, when this dropped, I was like, what the f*** is Kava? And then everyone was like, oh, how dare you? Kava's amazing. And I felt old. But the company has grown well. The thing that really kind of tickled my brain though, Marianne, was remember Sweetgreen when they went public back in like late Mm -hmm. 21? Also venture-backed tech angle via mobile app and online ordering and stuff. And Sweetgreen was hot for a while, and it has since really come down in value. So it's almost brave of Kava to go public now, given that its most obvious comp is struggling a bit. But I wonder if we need bravery in the IPO market. Like, I wonder if Kava goes public and does well. It changes the narrative a little bit. Yeah, I mean, look, it doesn't matter how I feel about it. I mean, it's probably, if I tried it again, I might like it. I mean, I, I'd like to see it succeed, right? Like, I don't, I don't want to see this fail. I think the overall concept is decent, supposedly healthy food, convenient, all of that. So I don't know, maybe like I like, I like the bravery. I applaud the bravery. 
Yes. And the company has put up some pretty big numbers. So obviously, as you can imagine, in the 2020 timeframe when COVID hit, sales did decline at the company, but it's posted really impressive revenue growth, partially on the back of the Zoe's Kitchen purchase and conversion. But it reached, uh, I think it was $564 million in total revenue last year. And in Q1 of this year, revenue grew to $203 million from $159 million last year. So frankly, pretty impressive. And I'm mm-hmm. going to try it out. And uh, frankly, look, at this point, Mary, I will scrape the bottom of the bowl for an S1. And I finally got one and it's close to our world. And there's a comp to a company we used to cover. So I'm calling it close enough. And if you don't want to hear about Kava anymore on this show, because it might come up again later on, uh, and you're the founder of a company, go public. And then I will talk about you and not Mediterranean bowls that are designed to be healthy with, quote, generous portions, according to the IPO filing. (laughs) That's more of a threat than anything, actually, now that I think about it. I was a dare. I was a dare. I'll, I'll take dare. I mean, we just had Jeff Richards from GGV on the show talking about the late stage and how unicorns are either doing well or not doing well, how many are going to make it and which ones are profitable. But that didn't give me a lot of confidence that suddenly there's going to be this, you know, skies open and IPOs rain down from the heavens. In fact, everyone that I talk to kind of says things like, well, maybe in the first half of 2024. And they're saying terrifying things like 2025. So, you know, maybe Kava is the uh, the IPO for now, even if it's venture backed ish and tech related, if you will. But I'll take what I can get because uh, a hungry man will eat whatever's put in front of him. Now, we are going to head on to a couple of themes here in a minute. But first, we are going to take a very quick break. And when we get back, it's all things daylight. All right, Marianne, we are back. And I want to say we are going to talk about the end of a saga that has been ticking along for some time. We covered this company when it was raising money. We covered this company when it stumbled. And now it appears we have switched off the lights. Yeah. I mean, this is always kind of a sad thing as a journalist, right? When we cover a company when it's born, we get excited about its mission, what it's doing. In this case, Daylight was a neobank catering toward the LGBTQ plus community noble mission. I wanted to see it succeed uh, as many others, I believe. It raised 5 million in seed funding in June, 2021. It raised another 15 million last November. Things started coming out earlier this year, though, that painted it, or rather mostly the CEO and co-founder Rob Curtis in a pretty unflattering light. Former employees, three in fact, filed a lawsuit. They alleged things like age and wage discrimination, whistleblower retaliation, fraud, just lots of not very good things. So it was not a shock when I uh, realized earlier this week, the company was shutting down with operations seizing on June 30th. Uh, And the sad thing here is that, you know, whenever something shuts down, it's not only kind of a bummer of a business story and tough for the investors and whatever, but also like there's a consumer aspect to this because people have their money there. And the company did say Mm -hmm. that people will be able to remove their funds, uh, I think, through June 30th. So they have more than a month, which seems to be a a reasonable time frame. It may be a little bit short. But I mean, what's your take on like the overall balance of allegations of wrongdoing versus maybe the business didn't make a lot of sense because maybe too small of a market. Like I'm trying to decide why it died and, and how I should feel about that, given that there's a number of possible kind of key factors, if you will. Yeah, I do think it was probably a combination, not just any one thing. I did talk to people who use the platform and and one said really the only thing that that she found really differentiated was the ability to use her name that she had changed to, not her birth name, which most financial institutions will not allow. So she really appreciated being able to have a card with her name that she goes by now. 
Other than that, I haven't heard a ton of differentiation coming out of the company. I mean, I think they did offer things like cash back if you spent money with queer and allied businesses that they partnered with. I think they did things to try to help people save for things like gender affirming procedures. Okay. But one of the things also that I found interesting in his blog post, Rob Curtis, the CEO, he basically said that he felt like Well, he said he couldn't figure out a way to do it profitably. So he was like surrendering to the big banks. I mean, he said that. And I was like, people who start neobanks, and it feels like you're just throwing in the towel by saying that. Like, I don't know. I was a little surprised by his language. I recall the quote, but I mean, literally this morning, I was digging through the latest financial information from Starling, which is a UK focused neobank, which is making buckets of money, crushing it in the current market. And my new favorite pet topic or pet theme, if you will, is uh, the impact of rising interest rates on fintech companies because they're driving tons of revenue off of net, net interest margin, which if you don't spend a lot of time reading banking financial disclosures, I'll explain. Banks will collect deposits and pay out a certain rate, and then they will use those deposits to make loans at a higher rate. And essentially, the gap between the two, roughly, works out to your net interest margin. And when you can get a bigger spread going on, you can make a lot of money. And with rates being higher, well, there's more room for to have a spread. And so, People are doing well. So Coinbase is driving a big chunk of its revenue. Robinhood, Starling as well. Mm-hmm. And I was, uh, we don't have recent data from Revolut or Monzo, but it's probably the same story. So to me, like we're seeing this resurgence of like people that work with consumer money because suddenly cash is value. And Daylight saying we couldn't do this profitably. I'm like, you were a neobank with a couple of doodads that, well, I think very important and good, didn't seem to be too expensive by themselves. So why? I don't know. It just seemed it seemed like a weird conclusion, if you will. Yeah, I felt like that, too. It is sad to see another startup in this space crash and burn, I guess, is the only other way to the way to put it. And it's not going to be the last. I mean, companies like Chime are going to do fine. The biggest, most highly valued neobanks are going to do, I think, just fine. Uh, But I wonder if this is not the last of the smaller. I say more niche, not as a pejorative, more of a, a TAM point more niche focused neobanks are going to struggle unless the differentiation ran a lot deeper than the good stuff that this bank was doing. I guess we can uh, try to think of some sort of light related pun. Turn off the lights on daylight or send it off into the sunset. There you go. Teresa got to figure it out. We're going to sunset daylight. There you go. Oh, yeah. All right. Let's move on to the layoffs slash hiring side of things. Now, this is kind of a two-sided story because on one hand, we do have a couple of layoffs we need to talk about because they matter, but then also there's more of a positive twist at the end. So stay with us. First up is that Marianne SoundCloud has once again cut staff. Yeah, it was 8%, which I think only amounted to about 40 people, which not a huge amount. Like when you look at Meta that laid off another six thousand employees, but still layoffs nonetheless. Yeah. And SoundCloud, if you don't know, is an online music service, if you will. It's awesome. If you're a big music dweeb like I am, it's something that I have used and keep using. I'm, I'm really glad that it made it through. But the context of why this set of layoffs matters, one is that it's not the first. They cut staff. I think it was last August, about 20%, so a smaller cut. But the company's mm-hmm. making a lot of noise about getting to profitability. And the way they phrased it um, when I was reading through the coverage and also how, how the company talked about it is that they really want to be like self-sustaining and they want to be just kind of like a long-term viable business. And the pejorative term for this is lifestyle business. I don't think that really applies here, but I wonder if this is going to become like a thematic way that increasingly small and tactical cuts are made to startup personnel as companies look for essentially freedom from the kind of like treadmill of venture capital, if you will. So, you know, Marianne, 
Do you think we'll see more of stuff like this? Unfortunately, probably so. I mean, I think we've been seeing layoffs, right? A lot over the past year, year and a half. I don't think we're that's going to end anytime soon for a lot of different reasons. And it's unfortunate, for especially for the people who are affected. But when it's for things like trying to get to profitability, I understand that. Yeah. And as long as like these layoffs were handled in a kind and good way, you know, unfortunately, that's just happens, right? I think it's worse when you see Meta laying off 21,000 people, but yet spending $13.7 billion on an acquisition. Acquisition of, wasn't that the Reality Lab spend? which is their metaverse yeah. thing. So it wasn't an acquisition mm-hmm. per se. It's more of like a dubious operating cost, if you will. Right. Whatever. Okay. Sorry about that. Whatever. Spending $13.7 billion on its reality labs vision while laying off 21,000 people just doesn't, I don't know, this doesn't sit well with me. Yeah. I struggle a lot with companies that announced $40 billion stock buybacks earlier this year and then cut another 6,000 staff because what they're saying is we were transferring too much of our corporate surplus to the people who run the company. And what we need to do instead is transfer more of that surplus to shareholders who do f**k all. Right. Look, my money is in index funds because I'm a journalist, so I don't buy individual stocks, blah, blah, blah. But do you know what my index funds hold? <laughs> Turns out I, I checked a lot of big tech. So like I'm an indirect investor in this company and I'm kind of pissed. Like, I don't know. You don't yeah. have to, I, I'd rather have $35 billion in buybacks and 6,000 more people employed at Meta. Right. It just seems like the more human thing. But there is another angle to this that's non-financial that I think does matter, which is that Zuck, and I was reminded of this when I was prepping for today's show, said in March about this, quote, year of efficiency, that the company was kind of moving too slow and that when they began to reduce their overall kind of like product mix and, and work, they can move a lot faster. And so they had kind of underestimated the indirect costs of lower priority projects. I think it's almost a direct quote. And that makes sense to me. So to me, it's it's not really the year of efficiency. It's more like the year of focus. And that I can kind of get behind yeah. more so than just trying to juice EPS, you know? Yeah, I see your point. And I think Meta really needs to focus, right? And and I <laughs> that probably kind of will lead us into our next theme. So I don't know if I'm jumping ahead, but you know, it was so focused on the metaverse and now it's starting to realize, oh wow, we're really behind on the really next big thing, which is AI. Yes. So the AI front, if you're tired about hearing about AI, oh man, I got some bad news because I don't think we're gonna stop talking about this for a while. It it has calmed down some. I think, Marianne, in terms of like hype and so forth, because the iPhone moment of ChatGPT going viral in terms of bringing a consumer product to the front that everyone could use instantly and just loved, that's passed. And now we're more into like the enterprise questions. But the big news for the show today is that Anthropic has raised $450 million to build, quote, next gen AI assistance. It's an enormous amount of money. And if you recall, Marianne, we got the Series C pitch deck from Anthropic a couple months back, and we reported that the company was looking to raise as much as $5 billion over the next couple of years to essentially work its tail off and build competing products what OpenAI is doing with its own, of course, specific twists and thoughts. So we know they're looking for a lot more. How does the $450 million hit you when you read that headline? million these days is a lot of money, right? Like this was not a big deal again a couple of years ago to see these nine digit, nine figure, whatever raises. It's a big deal now. 450 million is almost half a billion dollars. It's not anywhere near the 5 billion though that it said it needed or wanted to raise over the next two years. So like 
when you look at the overall big picture, yes, it's a lot of money. But when you look at the AI space, you know, it's going to still need a lot more. Yes, absolutely. But there's there's a fun kind of like, I'm not going to say cold war, but two large powers are waging effective proxy wars in the AI world because Anthropic, as I understand it, effectively has kind of a tie up with Google's cloud. And OpenAI has a tie up with Microsoft's cloud called Azure. And so we're seeing two of the three major IaaS and PaaS, infrastructure as a service and platform as a service companies, link arms with one external AI company that they've also helped to fund. That leaves AWS doing its own work, I guess. But to me, Mm -hmm. like Anthropic probably can get the money that it needs because is Google going to say, wow, you know, we're not going to keep betting on this company that we've bet on before because it's too expensive, but we're going to let Microsoft keep dumping money into open AI? Probably not. That's probably simplistic, but that's my take. What do you think? You know, that's a really good point. And if I recall correctly, I mean, didn't we talk about this in a previous show that like we felt like Google was investing in a in something that would be competing against its own bard? Or am I confused? Oh, yeah. I mean, okay. So there's some of that. If you watched Google's IO developer event, the company is talking about bard and its own generative AI and all the work that it's done and also putting money into Anthropic. So questions, but also if you're going to have a, a one winner race, having two horses isn't bad. Is that a good analogy? Or maybe like, do you see Google acquiring Anthropic or is that just way too much? Oh man, that's a really, really interesting question. So you buy it and you fold it into, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I could, maybe because Google just put together its AI and deep mind groups, right? Maybe, I maybe. I don't know. Just, just thinking out loud. But Microsoft didn't buy well, I didn't. Okay, let me rephrase that. They didn't buy all of OpenAI, right? Right. Is there an advantage to having some AI work done by an external company so that way there's less congressional liability? You know, I don't know, but I do think this is going to be fascinating to watch to see how all of this plays out. I'll be honest, it's kind of almost amusing to see how these big tech companies are all like freaking out and racing to to like win the AI race. So as a spectator, it's it's kind of entertaining. Yes. And I just wanted to confirm what I said earlier. Crunchbase does note that Google put hundreds of millions of dollars into Anthropic in their series. Well, kind of between their series B and series C earlier this year. So they are a direct investor. And that does unify my point about Google Cloud for the record. But what's really funny, and I know this is a low blow, but I, I think Sam Bankman Freed did their series B. Mm, led yeah, it. I think they led it. Yeah. F- F- yeah. I don't yeah. Really, well, I mean, like when we say SBF, we mean kind of like the pile of fraud that was SBF, FTX, and Alameda. Who knows where the money came from? It could have been customer money. Hey. But there's going to be a really interesting cap table conversation when you're like, all right, we got the board member from uh, from Spark and, and Google and uh, Sam Bankman-Fried is going to zoom in from jail. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, I know. Wow. Woo. Can you imagine? I, I just don't know how the recipients of money from SBF must be feeling right now. I mean, gross, disgusting, yes. sad. And also people are trying to get it back. Like the CEO of FTX is... Uh, I don't think famous for being cuddly, you know, (laughs) you know, get a crowbar and claw it back. I'm excited about this. I don't mean to wrap up, but uh, a last little note. I'm very curious about where the value accrues in the current AI race. And I'm going to beat this drum for a long time because it's really cool that OpenAI is working with Azure and that Anthropic is working with Google and so forth. But like it feels a bit like the majors have come in 
and scooped into their arms, if you will, some of the leading players that are doing more foundational-ish work. And you can argue that that's necessary given the compute requirements and so forth. Fine. But where do startups fit into this mix? Like like, like actual startups, not companies that raise a half billion dollars at a time, like companies that raise four and a half million, companies that have 20 mm-hmm. employees. Like, can they compete or are they just going to end up trying to lever out someone else's models? Because if so, they're kind of like less impressive. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just going to be hard if you're super early stage, right? At this point to be able to compete really significantly. The question that I think this might boil down to Marianne is like, how good are the open source models? And can those be levered by smaller companies intelligently to make more targeted solutions for enterprise? So like, I know that Databricks is doing some stuff and Appian is doing some stuff and they're trying to like let companies build like gen AI for their particular data set in a private sense. And that's cool, but it won't have as big of an impact as these larger, more open, more general models, I don't think. So I don't know. I think there could be like one startup out of a hundred that could do something really unique and kind of groundbreaking in this space, right? A lot of them will still try. Yeah. I saw a funny tweet. Uh, I forget which investor this was. So to the investor, I'm plagiarizing violently. I apologize. But they said something detective like, maybe the best way to stand out today as a startup is to not be doing stuff with AI. And I... I thought that was really funny because do you remember 2018 when everyone was doing AI and chatbots were hot and there was like this AI boom and then it fizzled and then we did NFTs for a while and now we're, you know, NFTs have fizzled and AI is back. I do remember that. Actually, I remember South by Southwest. I served on a panel in 2018 or 19 around mobility and AI, right? And it was just at a very different stage. And even then it was... It was considered hot, but not like the hot that it is now. This is a different level of hot. Yeah. We could talk about that all day, but first we have a couple of things we need to do before we leave. And one of which is giving a couple of shout outs for folks who gave us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Marianne, who are we showing love to this week? We're showing love to Caitlin, Elon, and Marcelo. We appreciate you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. We appreciate it. Also, before we go, Marianne, you have a show coming out next Wednesday. What's going on? Yeah, I'll be interviewing Suze, and I'm really excited about that, talking all things personal finance. I've only seen clips of Suze, and uh, it's always her telling people that they're really bad with their money. So I'm hoping, (laughs) Marianne, that you come out unscathed from this. Oh my gosh. Yeah, me too. But I think it's going to be fun. So definitely tune in. Maybe you can pitch her on Checkmate for personal finance or something. (laughs) All right. uh, Don't forget, you can follow Equity on Twitter, where we tweet under the handle equity pod and that is where we will be sharing our upcoming forthcoming soon to be forecasted lots of guidance equity listener survey Woo! we do it every year it's gonna be fantastic and of course if you're coming to disrupt where marianne and i will be opening the show that first morning on equity you can use the code equity to save 15 percent off your pass so we're out of here we're back next tuesday because monday is a holiday so next week is equity tuesday marianne and Suze, and then the usual roundup on friday we'll see you then hugs goodbye bye Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. And a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.